G'day and welcome to another episode of Earth Property Insider. This isn't just any episode, this is our 100th episode and we've made it. So thank you for tuning in and supporting the show. I really appreciate all the great feedback I get from people and I hope we've been helping you grow your wealth and improve your life. And today we're going to recap our 10 most popular episodes downloaded and listened to all my favorite little segments coming to you to celebrate our 100th episode. And I'm also giving away a fabulous lunch with me. So if you go on onto iTunes or Spotify and post a review, give me your feedback. I'd really love to see what you think of the show. And send us an email to let me know. Send it to jared, J-A-R-R-A-D, at investorsedge.com.au. Make sure you do that by the 10th of November and you'll go in the draw going to have a fabulous lunch where we'll discuss strategy, property, the market, life. It's going to be an epic lunch to remember. So let's get stuck into these top 10 episodes and recap some of the highlights over the last 100 episodes. Hopefully, I'll be around for at least another few hundred. Let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. next point they value their time over money now this one i never really understood before but in the last few years i've really got into understanding this so what does that mean well that's why they're prepared to pay others to do things for them because their time is just so precious and as i've gotten a family as i've gotten a daughter spending time with her and having time to think and space to do that is just so precious and it's the only thing we can't ever get back we can always go and get more money but certain things come up where it reminds you of just how short life is and how important that time is that we're never going to get back so because the wealthy put such a high value on their time it also means that they choose to putting effort into things they choose high impact activities doesn't mean that they're always go go but when they're working when they are working they're making a high impact whether that be to direct do the most highest value tasks or it might mean making a larger contribution to charities and other things that they're passionate about. So next point, they buy investment grade property in high growth blue chip areas. Now, this is key because, and I've touched on it in episode 33, my criteria for a top performing property. The key difference here is they're not gambling, they're not speculating, they're finding the best, most proven places to park their money. And because it's in greatest demand, it's going to grow the best over time. And the other thing that I never got ages ago when I I was still deciding whether I was going to more focus on income producing property or growth producing property is that when you focus on income producing property, 
property because the growth in capital is not there as much. It also limits the growth in the rental price because the rental price is directly in line with the overall asset value. So let's say over 10 or 20 years, a property that grows by a lot more than the other, the rent's going to go up in line with that. And that's why in 10, 20 years, someone that has a, a blue chip property that's investment grade are going to wake up with much higher income than the person that went out and bought a more of an income focused uh, property that doesn't have the high growth associated with it. The growth in the rental price is going to be subdued and limited too. So when I got my head around that, and I also have been more drawn towards simplicity and thinking over the longer term, it just makes so much more sense to buy investment grade blue chip and go with quality over quantity of your assets. So next point, they are good money managers with excellent control of their money. So listen to episode 38 if you haven't already on finding your next property deposit. I really enjoyed that one, snuck in there all of my uh, money habits and suggested structures for your bank accounts and how to control your money more. So money has a strange way of only going to those that can handle it and only giving you as much as you can handle. Those that can multiply it to make a positive impact, money just seems to show up more too. And it's the way that money flows around our economies. How do we start to set that strategy for you? I can tell you, first of all, what doesn't work. It's easier for me to tell you what doesn't work or works very, very slowly and it's not going to get you there, you know, before the time that you're ready for retirement. So in my experience from everything that I've seen, buying new properties in far out areas is a very bad strategy for achieving this high growth consistently. Buying in large complexes of high density apartments is also a very bad strategy for achieving high growth consistently. Because in both of these situations, you have oncoming and ongoing supply of more land, more apartments that are always competing with it. And what, how does growth come about when demand exceeds supply? And that's just the fundamental of economics there. So in these types of properties, you never get that strong pressure in demand to give you the growth. So that's why... I generally suggest focusing on areas that have uniqueness, areas that are established, that have the amenities, that have the proven history that you can look into. So when you look at what property brokers and builders usually sell, what do do they sell? They sell exactly this. That's where you can pick them from a mile if you find out their strategy and They'll have all the justifications for it in the world, but ultimately they're selling this because it gives them more business and because they get inflated commissions for doing so. So stay away from anything that is brand new. The side note to that is if you're creating and developing that brand new thing, then that is worth considering, but obviously not at the expense of the area that you're doing it in. How do we actually start to know where we are in in the property cycle? 
Well, I think the first lesson is to remember that there is a property cycle. So for a lot of more beginning investors, they won't know the difference. Yeah. Um, and in Western Australia in particular, the market has been flat for a long time. So where, where's the cycle? The main cycle, of course, happens because we're human. We tend to share the same optimism or pessimism. And as I said, it's not because of a period of time. It really is to do with when we hear the news is good and when we see property values going up, and that's happened particularly on the East Coast of Australia this year, and you read that your house is worth so much more, the wealth of it kicks in and you overspend, you buy more, you upgrade your home, you invest. And so the market tends to overshoot. But then when the next stage of the cycle happens and you hear all the bad news, it, it, and it sort of undershoots as well. So the first lesson, I guess, from the past is, A, there are cycles. The next one to help understand is that what the market usually thinks, where we are in the cycle, what the commentators think is usually mm. wrong. It's so hard to tell in the middle of it, boy, is it easy to look back and say, oh, clearly the market yes. bottomed then, or clearly the market topped then. Uh, but we've been both around long enough to know <laughs> the, the, the rearview mi mirrors are uh, easier to look through than the, the 2020 vision in hindsight. Isn't, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think the other big lesson, of course, is there isn't one property market. So yeah, generalise, the media talks about the Australian property market. But even in Western Australia, even in Perth, there isn't one Perth market. There's the house and land market, there's the new home buyer market, there's the established market, there's the apartment market, um, and there's the high end, which works at a totally different cycle to, to the more average and lower suburbs as well. And maybe one last factor, I think it's important to remember I learned about it many years ago, is the concept of an X factor. And I'm not mm. talking about the TV show, that music show. I'm talking about the fact that every year something comes out of the blue, unforeseen, uh, that blows the most best forecasts out of the water. Uh, some people call it a black swan event. Now, I'm not talking about coronavirus. That's that one in a decade where the world breaks and every decade or so, the world does break. Something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, the global financial crisis, 9-11, um, coronavirus. But there are smaller things, like uh, the election that no one thought the uh, yeah, government would negative would gearing win. proposals yeah. on the table, you know, that yeah. upset us. Yeah. sure. We had, um, uh, there's lots so, of them going back, isn't there? Mm, in, in fact, uh, I learned about this from a, an economist, Don Stammer, who used to write what was the BRW uh, that then was taken over by the Financial Review. And every year he tried to predict the X factor for the forthcoming <laughs> year. And it was a fun little competition one would have to see what is it. But by definition, it's unforeseen. You don't know what it is. You can't predict it because if you would, <laughs> it wouldn't be an X factor. Let me speak first to the what I call the accidental investors. You may have previously rented out your home because it didn't make sense to sell at the time. It wasn't an intentional investment that you went out and made and added it to the rentals, um, to being a rental. And you've been waiting for a better time to sell. You may have even tried to sell and couldn't get the price that you want. So you went and rented out or you didn't even bother because you, you knew that it you know, you could still make your other purchase happen. You still had, you might have refinanced, used that money towards your home or had, along with some other savings and you were able to 
make your other purchase. So you reluctantly, perhaps at the time, went and made your home a rental property. So you may have fallen into being a landlord by accident, but I'd encourage you to try to see yourself as an intentional investor now. And if the property is in a good area and you can afford to hold it, then why not keep it? Continue to learn, grow your asset base, think about the long term and not just hold onto the property to benefit from the likely growth in the year ahead. But why not think about the next 20 to 30 years and how much growth that could give you, how much difference that could make in your world down the track. So you've already bought your next home. You don't really need the money out. It might make you feel a little bit better. might need you to push your comfort zone a bit to be okay with that. Um, But you have to also look at the case that you're just going to end up paying taxes on the gains if there is a gain. You're going to pay selling costs. And yes, you could save some loan interest on your home. But if you use the proceeds to pay down, uh, you know, if you did use those proceeds to pay down debt, I think when you compare the net um, benefit, I think the prospects for potential upside are far beyond any loan saving. And I also don't think you can judge the prospects ahead for growth over the next 10 years based on how the last 10 years have been because we had our biggest boom in history and that had to be preceded by a balancing out and our biggest drop in history. It was a very difficult time. But previous to that, over the previous 30 or 40 years, our growth has been a lot more sustainable and and you can't think that Perth is all just boom and bust when that was a one in a lifetime perhaps event that we just have been through and we're on the other side of that now. So I think the prospects for growth over the next 10 years certainly shouldn't be judged on how the last 10 years have been. If anything, because the last 10 years have underperformed, I would expect the next 10 years to have greater prospect for growth ahead. So there's some wider perspective on transitioning from accidental investor potentially to intentional investor and trying to drag your thinking up to thinking on 10, 20, 30 years instead of just the next year. And what I've found is sometimes the best things in life happen by accident and it all, all it takes is a bit of a mental shift to change your plans and, and get into that intentional space. To find a property for mine's first investment, it was a family effort. What we ended up doing is we were obviously more driven by what we could afford and my parents had never invested in property at all. So, there was a big learning curve for them too. You know, they had paid off their house by that stage but had no real desire to invest and hadn't gone into any of that space. So, they put up the money and I dropped my brother off. So, we organized our finance obviously and we we had a pretty limited budget still because it was what they felt comfortable with. And well, we selected some suburbs in Perth more based on, you know, what we could afford. And I you would drop my brother off who was five years younger than me and on his bike and his mandate was to drop some flyers in houses that looked really bad from the street and needed a renovation. And my flyer was really basic, you know, on our inkjet printer that said, want to sell your property, I'll buy it for Fast, ready to go, you know. 
call me, call me for a quick answer. <laughs> so it was really simple, and it was how we ended up buying our first two properties, actually. So it does work, and that was in a hot market. So one of the, the sellers called us, and they'd already left the house, and they were like, "We've already moved into state. <laughs> you know, what will you pay us for it?" <laughs> so um, with my parents, we worked out a bit of a budget for the renovation, and on this first one, we came up with a thirty thousand budget, and we worked backwards from that renovated selling price in the area and we, we factored in a 15% profit. So being an engineer, I love my spreadsheets and um, I did this in a pretty thought out way. So we came up with the amount to offer, which was 189,000. And I thought, oh, I'll make it a bit of a round, nu- not a round number, but a bit of a, an odd number so that they think we've really uh, calculated it out. <laughs> and um, it was accepted. So I was really um, blown away and not sure what to do next. And once the property was settled, we spent countless hours after work and on the weekends for around four months renovating this house and it was like blood, sweat and tears into this thing and I had my younger brother along with us and it was looking back on it, it was a really great time to spend as a family, you know, like myself and my younger brother learned so many great skills that have stuck with us like with painting and landscaping and all the things. We worked out what we can do and what we don't want to do. This first investment property was a massive effort but it did show mine that committing to property full-time was possible. It was bloody hard work and some of the best times and we ended up um, spending 33000 so we pretty tight on our budget which was good. We did a lot to the property so we completely gutted it, did it like a new kitchen, new bathroom, painting, rendering to the front and restored the roof and did new carpets, blinds and landscaping so it was a lot that we did um, and it did take a lot of time. So our profit at the end of that one was eighty five. 5,000 four months later. So it was big money like for me at the time, you know, even splitting that 50-50. My first year salary as an engineer was 55,000. So I nearly made as much in the four months as I did you know, in the whole year. We bought it for 189. Yep. And the bank valued it, interestingly enough, I think for 220 or 230. We bought pretty well. And then the adding of value definitely helped. And so it was valued at 320 on completion of our val of our renovation. And we rented it out for 380 per week. So it was decently um, decent profit and decent upside on the rental. The one mistake I do see people make is probably overly focusing on I need a development site and trading everything off for that. So, mm, yeah, the location for me is what does the heavy lifting. And if you have to compromise that, I'd take a, a property without development potential any day over a poorly located property that has development potential. Yeah, so. definitely. Definitely. You know, and th- there are other factors to think of, like a lot of the development sites are old houses and then you've got maintenance yes. issues. And if you need to kind of understand that this house may cost you a little bit in the meantime and you, yeah. you need to work that out, how much is this going to cost me to hold? And that's why I think developing straight away is probably, for me anyway, the better strategy because you can eliminate all those 
maintenance issues straight away, get the house up to shape, do the subdivision, build and move it on or whatever you want. You know? That was my golden rule when I was starting out that I wouldn't buy something unless I can develop it straight away. But yep. I think as you get a bit more solid, you know, capital base behind you and you can weather that, you know, that holding cost and you just factor it in and you still know that that land component is going to, you know, grow much better for you even when you take out the maintenance, even when you take out, you know, that larger holding cost with the lower rental yield. That's why I still prefer it. But everyone's at, at a different stage and can afford different things. So, yeah, that's really good to separate in terms of where you're at in your journey because, yeah, early on I was like, yeah, I, I can't afford this. It's going to cost me too much in maintenance, cost me too much in the lower rental yield. I need to develop it straight away. Yes, exactly right. And, you know, they're definitely not a good first investment because the yields are usually pretty low. So, mm. And that um, um, cost to renovate and or develop usually has to come from cash or equity and you can't borrow for yes. it. So that, you know, yeah, you need to have that money around and plan to do it and have it ready, if that makes sense. I'm not able to find any credible information on predictions for what level of population growth we may experience over the next year. Being good if I could, but I think uh, a lot of the government departments are probably keeping that internal for now. However, with our city having the most affordable housing in Australia, pretty much of any capital city besides Darwin, I believe, and one of the most livable cities in uh, you know, the international rankings by various um, organisations that have released their studies, I think we very well could reach the level similar to our last booms where we had 57,000 growth from migrants and even if it's only half this at 30,000 growth over the next year, perhaps it initially starts out slow and have some hurdles with getting you know, health concerns and quarantining and stuff under to the new norm. And then we build up our population growth again when the government's more confident that, I guess, first all of the Australians stuck overseas are returned, then they'll probably you know, then start prioritising getting population growth back on track. So even if we have half of that 57,000 and say end up with 30,000, it's still a very large amount when we compare it to the total of 85,000 sale and rental transactions over the last year. Imagine if we had 57,000 on you know extra demand getting thrown into that market when we had just when we had 85,000 transactions over the last year. It's easy to see when you compare those two numbers and even a half number at 30,000, how big a difference it could have on pushing sale and rental prices up. So especially when you consider that it's already a seller's market and an investor's market uh, for renting out your property and that most new entrants will rent first, this is undoubtedly going to place immense pressure on the rental market and there's going to be decreasing the number of properties available uh, to rent and in the shorter term increasing prices. So with further increasing of rental prices and some of the best rental yields on offer, you'd have to imagine then that it's going to become even more attractive for investors in Australia. And investors will follow the yield, they'll follow 
the increasing rental prices. Perth will get its time in the sun, I believe, and will likely see many more investors buying then and pushing house prices up further, adding more rental stock to the market to bring things back into balance and give all of these new entrants and migrants a place to live. And hey, if even if we get 30,000 uh, migrants over the next year and we've got 7,000 odd uh, land sold that is building, um, then it's barely even going to offset when you consider some of those tenants will be coming out of their rentals and moving into their newly built houses. There'll be some first-home buyers that are living at home. So I'm seeing that the influx of migrants could drastically outweigh any outflow of tenants towards their newly built house. Now, look, there are some other factors to consider when deciding to do a renovation or development and deciding if it's for you other than just pure returns. So it'd be remiss of me to not discuss them because we did touch on some of them uh, in the episode with Stuart. I've been reflecting on them since and I also wanted to fill in some gaps. So when it comes to the first consideration, you want to look at your saving rate. And I mentioned a saving rate above of 40K per year. And if you can save deposits really fast, then developing and adding value is less important. So for me, developing and adding value when I first started out in my journey was a lot more important than these days. I'm probably better off just spending my time focusing on earning more money than I am focusing on uh, putting that you know, effort into investing. So if that's the case for you, work out where your time is best spent, look at your saving rate and decide whether an active strategy is going to be worth the effort. And that's the very first important consideration. The next part of doing any renovation or development is considering risk. So a property development and renovation obviously carry extra risk, especially when you're starting out and you haven't done one before. So I suggest you stick to renovation to begin with because subdivision development can be a lot more difficult or certainly make sure you get educated first and use professionals to help prevent the mistakes. And that would be, you know, using a buyer's agent, using your town planners, using your builders, using your real estate agent to advise on end values and work back and make sure that the profits are actually there so that you're not just going to all this effort for nothing and um, you're actually then not able to refinance your money that you've spent trapped in the property. It could actually slow you down and tie you up in knots and, you know, have you going around in circles. So the other big factor here is your experience level. So it can be a good idea to start out with just being a more passive investor. Once you've then gotten the basics learned through experience, you can either look to develop one of the properties that you own that has development potential, or you could then buy one to develop you know, straight away. Once you've got a few runs under the, your belt, you're familiar with the whole process for purchasing, the process for having tenants, and, and you know, it's not all a massive learning curve if you try and do it all on your first one. The other parts to consider here is the hassle factor. Now, not everyone wants to put the extra time and effort in, even if it means creating wealth faster. So for me, I definitely wanted to put this effort in earlier on in my investing. And these days, 
I still buy properties with development potential and uh, I just don't, I'd prefer to defer taking them forward uh, and developing them till later. And that could be a bit of a project for me at some stage when I'm, uh, when I might be bored with work <laughs> or nearing retirement and wanting a, a bit of a challenge. So think about that hassle factor, whether you've got time for it and, and the appetite for it. And, um, you know, it can be obviously worth it if you do. First question that someone's asked on the Perth Property Investment Group is they've got a principal place of residence, they're sitting on about 100k of equity buildup, and they're considering selling at the moment, renting for a year, and then looking at purchasing again when the market corrects itself. So big assumptions there that they're assuming that the market is going to correct itself, which and they're considering sitting on the sideline basically and uh, hoping that they can pick up a better bargain in a year's time. So, look, anyone that listens into my Perth property market updates would know that I'm extremely optimistic on where Perth is heading. All the foundations are very solid in term of, terms of low unemployment. We've got one of the most affordable property markets in Australia. And these two things combine, uh, along with very good rental yields, is seeing flurry and uh, an increase in migrants, as well as the investors rejoining the scene. And you can see in uh, the monthly trends that Adelaide's leading the way in terms of overall popularity and price growth at the moment, but it's shifting to Perth and it has been to Brisbane and now Sydney and Melbourne are coming off. So it's a real gamble to sell, sit on the sideline. You're going to pay rent equivalent, which is wasted money completely. And you're probably going to have to pay a lot higher rent for the same sort of property at the moment. Even with interest rates having increased, rental yields are still higher for the most part. And you're uh, taking a big gamble that you've predicted the wrong way and the market doesn't then price you out or cause you to have a much higher you know, cost to pay to get back in. So, if I was in this situation, what I'd personally do is either look at selling now and buying in the same market because then you can control the prices that you're getting and not have that risk element of time or sell later and buy in the same market. So, where you can actually look to make your gains is not from hoping and praying that the market's going to crash and that you can you know, get back in. That's too big a gamble for me. I think your gain should come from selling your property, presenting it really well, choosing an agent that's going to get you the best price, really getting an emotional price from that market uh, when you're selling, and then trying to buy very well on the other side. And if you sell well and buy well and do that better than uh, most people, you're going to end up with a really good changeover, really good turnover in the middle. And, uh, you know, then you'll be in upgraded principal place of residence that you really want to be in. Whether that's now or later, I would do it at the same time. So, hopefully that gives you some clarity and others some clarity if they're in that position. Is there any insights that you've got? Because you'd be at the coalface of seeing what migrants do. Do they typically, you know, buy a property or do they rent? 
Do they buy in advance of coming? Like, what do they do when it comes to property and how does that sort of usually play out? So, I would put it down to individual circumstances. There's different different cohorts out there which have a different appetite, right? you got those that have the cash where they themselves don't want to come in and do a business visa yet because their operations are based in Asia, for instance, but they're happy to send their kids here to study. And then what they'll do is they'll buy a property. They'll buy a property for the kids. They'll treat that property as their holiday home and they'll come back and forth at, at their leisure and the kids own the property because you know they're the visa holders, right? Yeah, okay. So that's the that's the big bread and butter. That's the one where the students obviously have a lot of financial backing. They're quite you know academic. Then you've got the, the other cohort of students which uh, don't have much financial support from their families, and they came over here you know with maybe ten twenty thousand dollars. You know most likely they'll rent, and through renting they'll spend a lot of money on education. You know you're talking about tertiary education for overseas migrants are about sixty to one hundred twenty thousand dollars for a course, and then they'll start to enter the workforce through a graduate visa and try to get their permanent residency. And then from there, I find that once they have their permanent residency, they wouldn't purchase their property to about maybe two or three years after having status in Australia to do so. The whole experience for them to buy a property is roughly about five or six years. Yeah, wow. So even the entrance that we're getting now may not, like, obviously they have to rent, they have to live somewhere. So yeah, it's so much longer than I appreciated before they get into home ownership in most cases. So in most that cases, type of person, yeah. That type of cohort, yeah. So I guess if you do meet an overseas student and they're looking to buy, most likely is that their parents have the funds for it. They're happy to pay the 11% stamp duty. You know, you do have, I guess, professionals, academics, you know, engineers, for instance, from the big mining companies. They will obviously be provided a permanent residency a lot quicker through their companies. And, and those guys will buy uh, straight away in that sense. So those guys might rent for maybe six months to a year to find their suburbs and, and, and they go from there. And then you've got the business visa market to again you know they have the objective to move the operations to Australia so you know they know they're committed so they'll buy the property as a place to reside when they come into Australia so I myself have a few migrants who have the permanent residency and pretty much treat WA as a de facto home they're here every three four months they're here for about a week they enjoy themselves and they leave and the house is empty and I'm the guy that has to come over and, and wheel the bin out to make <laughs> so I'm me extra mile for your services yeah <laughs> but yeah it's so- crazy that yeah, it would just stay empty if they're not allowed to rent it out. So that's the thing. I mean, but these are they want flexibility, I guess, of using it when they want to. And you know, the rent probably doesn't mean that much in the grand scheme to them. You know, thirty thousand a year drop in the bucket, probably. Yeah, so. I mean, I bet you if you go around Dalkeith, around Jutland, and things like that, a lot of those guys up there are they don't live here. But a few of those properties around Manning in the outside the university, a few of those guys have not come back since COVID. You know, they just stayed yeah. offshore. Yeah. But there's a lot of empty houses at the moment where, where migrants who have got their permanent residency haven't returned back yet. But it's just a different appetite, really. Hmm. Well, that really gives us a lot better idea. So we've touched on a few reasons already, but why do you think migrants are cho- might be choosing Perth over other capital cities from what you're seeing when you chat to them? It's really about the lifestyle. You know, I got a good understanding of this when I was in Beijing and I was working out of there. It's, you know, you'd be surprised because we take for what we have for granted, these beaches, these weather and, and so forth. When I was in China, I didn't know that food security was an issue. You know, they wanted to ensure that the food that they got was not 
fake. I mean, people were exporting kangaroo meat and sending it to China and labeling it as Wagyu, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's quite interesting. But a lot of the time it's lifestyle. I mean, I've been selling Perth as the California of Australia. You know, you got the same weather, you got a big multicultural diversity here. It's quite safe. You know, there's a lack of traffic. Um, there's all these beaches, there's direct flights to Asia. You know, so overall, people realize that, you know what, it's like living in California, but without the hustle and bustle, without the traffic jam. Just a reminder that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature, as we don't know your specific situation. You should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburbs of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorsedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group. To be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group. Thank you.